I'm Chaplain Jacob Scott of the Oregon National Guard. This is the Hope in the Trenches podcast. We're going forward. I'll sit down for conversations with people who offer interesting and informative perspectives on finding strength for life and work in the trenches and even improving our spiritual posture. Whether you feel like you're under heavy bombardment or ready to go over the top toward a new objective, it's good to be with you. Our guest today is Jason Gardner. Jason is a former U.S. Navy SEAL, combat leader, and now a leadership instructor and speaker with Echelon Front, a leadership consulting firm. Jason retired in 2019 after nearly three decades in the SEAL teams with multiple deployments across the globe, including Somalia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He has experience at every level of leadership from a frontline SEAL sniper to the SEAL Team 5 Command Master Chief. He also served as a lead instructor for Naval Special Warfare Group 1 Training Detachment, where he created and executed realistic and challenging special operations combat training to better prepare SEAL units for the real-world battlefield. He's a recipient of a Silver Star and multiple other awards and decorations. Since retiring, Jason and his family have relocated here to the Northwest. He's going to be the keynote speaker for the Oregon Army National Guard Association's annual meeting in April, so we invited him on today to give our leaders and soldiers and airmen a chance to become familiar with him and his work. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us today on on Hope in the Trenches. Oh, so thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I also want to introduce our co-host today, Command Sergeant Major Lee Smith. He's the State Command Sergeant Major for the Oregon Army National Guard. Sergeant Major, it's always a pleasure to chat with you as well. I appreciate it, Chaplain. Uh, Glad to be here. Glad to link up with Jason and hear some of the insights you have for us, Jason. So uh, pretty excited. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Lee. Yeah, so Jason... Uh, I laugh a little bit when I ask this question, but what was your first thought when your office said that a chaplain wanted to have you on a podcast? Yeah, initially I I thought, oh, am I going to be on a religious podcast? I didn't really get it. But then, and I was like, I I think this, this sounds good. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, cool. Cause I know um, chaplains often have a a reputation. And so I want to, you know, I, I, I think it's great. And I very intentionally don't have chaplains on every every podcast because, well, we use a we throw a, f- a formula around that uh, a chaplain in the military is maybe they're a pastor to some or a religious leader to some, but they're a chaplain to all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And and now, in in today's military and in the military before, there aren't enough psychologists slash counselors for the need. They just aren't. No. And the, the chaplains really are able to lean into that void and help help folks out, help the you know, the command team, if you're command, if you think about it like a family, help the family out by being able to provide somewhere that people can go and 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 you know, talk to them and get feedback and all that. Right, with no really, well, Lord willing, no ulterior motives. I think that's one of the great things that the chaplain corps brings is we've got that that ironclad confidentiality. That it, I hate to use that word safe place. I think that gets over overused, but, right. but, it is, but it is a kind of a safe person to talk to. Sure. Absolutely. Well, Jason, you retired after a long career as a Navy SEAL, could you, could you tell us a little bit about your origin story or how'd you end up finding that calling in life? How'd you, how'd you become a Navy SEAL? So when I was about seven years, I think I was seven years old when I decided that, that I was going to join the military. And my, my father was a Marine. Um, he was a career Marine. So I grew up, you know, on and then around Marine bases when they purchased a house off base. And I, I love the outdoors. I was thinking about going to doing some kind of life science thing, working with animals. And then I just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I, I want to be in the military. I had this gravitational pull towards the military that I was going to accept and lean into. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in Southern California. I swam competitively and played water polo in high school and then was also a beach lifeguard. 
So that, the concept of being a maritime warrior was really, really, really appealing to me. Sure. And so once I found out about the SEAL teams, but I, I had a, and back in the, the late eighties, there weren't, there weren't movies. There was maybe one or two books and, um, outside of running into some Vietnam vets who might tell you about it, you really weren't going to find out about it. And then as it happened, I, there was a martial arts style called Kempo that I was taking. And one of the instructors was a SEAL in Vietnam. And, uh, he impressed me and my parents were like, Oh, this guy's a seal. And, and so then I started to pull the thread on it and I was like, Oh man, this, this is what I want to do. And I just, by my junior year in high school, I, I junior halfway through my junior year, senior year, I decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm joining the Navy as soon as I graduate and um, with the intent of going to the seal teams. And that's what I did. So did you realize kind of the, the challenge that you were signing up for right away or did that gradually unfold or, or was there kind of a, a moment where that crystallized like, oh, oh my goodness, this is a, this is a really um, incredible pursuit? Well, that's the appeal to it. The, the appeal to it being like, hey, this is some of the hardest training that the military has, which is what was that challenge is what was drawing me to it. Um, but I had no idea what I was getting into when I went to Bud's and, and it certainly wasn't easy. And I'll tell you when I, I I'm, I'm like, I stand five foot six tall. Um, you know, at, the, at that point I was 140 pounds. I was in really good shape, but, uh, I was a tiny guy and I felt like a little, when I got to Bud's, I felt like a little kid and Bud's is our basic underwater demolition slash seal training. Mm-hmm. And it's our selection course for the seal teams. And so, I was really, I, I, I had a, with the imposter syndrome, right? I thought at any moment someone was going to go, hey, wait a minute, Gardner's a little kid. What is he doing here? And I'll tell you, some of the other, the other guys that you see in there, they look like action figures, you know? They're oh, six imagine. foot three inches tall. They've got these physiques that are just incredible. They can do push-ups all day long. They can, they can swim and run, and, 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 and they're incredibly strong. And, and it's like, oh, my gosh. They're like, okay, well, let's just see see how far I can make it. And what I told myself is I like, I'm not gonna quit. I, they may kill me here, but I'm not quitting. And what I started to notice, and really as training went on, I started watching some of some of these great big impressive guys quit when it got a little cold. Or they quit when an instructor yelled at them in a way that they couldn't handle. And they just couldn't handle the stress, which is odd because you would think that someone is in that great a shape is able to deal with a lot of stress because they're working out so hard all the time. But it just it's not how it plays out. Mm-hmm. And then I also noticed that there were there were there were guys that I would completely dismiss looking them over from exterior appearances, just like. Oh yeah, whatever, normal guy. And then later on or, or during training, you find out this is one of the hardest people I've ever met. And, and so you learn to just not judge the, the book by the cover um, firsthand because you, you never know. And then, so with that comes a little bit of confidence, you know, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. okay. And the, the, the big guys, uh, I'm doing better than the big guys are doing and now I just got to grind it out. But it was the seal selection is hard. And, you know, for me, the water evolutions, they weren't challenging because I, I was a lifeguard and I mm-hmm. grew up on the ocean. And, um, you know, you tie my legs up and my hands behind my back and throw me in the pool. Yep, that's no big deal. Not a factor for me. But running was a factor for me and the cold was a factor for me. And so every person that goes through that cha- that training I don't, I don't know that anybody has it easy. You know, there's, there's a, a, we got a guy Drago who's a Polish immigrant that went through training and he'd already been in a gulag. So compared to the gulag seal training was easy, Oh yeah. but for the rest of us, it, it's hard and it, and you have to reach all the way as deep as you can to keep going and, and much deeper than you ever thought you could. Mm-hmm. 
So was there ever a moment where you thought, I, I do belong here? Because you mentioned imposter syndrome, and that's that's a real thing. I know I've felt that uh, at various points in my dang life, it. too. So, <laughs> here's what the military does to you, right? Right when you get comfortable doing your job, you get promoted into another one. Yeah. And so I, I got to tell you, I don't think I ever completely got away from I, – I like for – a year or so I'd be done with imposter syndrome and then I'd show up and get a new job. And then I'm like, ah, ah, but that that's, you know, it's healthy in a way because it makes me work harder. Oh yeah. It's because the second that you're not working hard to, to improve and do better, then you're just arrogant and you stagnate and it, it's, it's, it's not a, a constructive way to, to do it. So no, I never got over imposter syndrome. When I was promoted to, to master chief, I was like, Oh geez. I don't feel like I'm as squared away as some of these other guys. And then when I became a command master chief, I'm, I, I was like, ah, oh, you know, it, it took me six months to get comfortable in my own skin and actually get my arms around the, the job. So shoot for me. No, I, it, 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 it came in waves and it comes right when I'm comfortable with the job, then I'm out of that imposter syndrome. And, and then, then you get the new job and then, then I have it again. Um, yeah. That's confusing. Your syndrome's healthy. Go ahead, sir. Seems like that. that yeah. Sounds like that. I mean, that keeps you on your edge though. It keeps you focused and uh, accepting that new challenge and taking that face, face on and just going for it and learning everything you can. I mean, it keeps you sharp. Yeah, absolutely. It, it sure does. So I think it's definitely, definitely a positive thing it, 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 at a very minimum to just have that, that concept that like, Hey, I can always do things better and I've got stuff to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We can, we can never stop learning. So I'll, I'll give you an example of where I, I fell, fell prey to what we call a disease of victory. And I could have used a little bit more imposter syndrome. Uh, 2009, I deployed to Afghanistan as a SEAL task unit senior enlisted leader, right? So mm-hmm. the SEAL task unit is two SEAL platoons, and then um, they have their leadership inside of them. And then over the top of both those platoons is a task unit commander and myself. And at deployment to Afghanistan would be the most violent deployment of my five combat deployments. And we had firefights that we, – we had one firefight that was four days long. Mm-hmm. And so it was the most sustained combat, like, anybody in the SEAL teams had seen since, you know, the Battle of Ramadi in in 2006. And three quarters of the way through the deployment, we got uh, an operation to go up in the mountains north of Kandahar to get a uh, Taliban commander who was like one of these shadow governor guys. And he was also an IED facilitator. And it was this little Taliban village nestled up in the mountains and his compounds were on the edge of it. And up until this point, every firefight we'd gotten in with the Taliban, we, we completely mauled them. You know, mm-hmm. we had better weapons, we had better training, we had air support. And, and as a result of that, we started to get sloppy. And we went up there, we got a piece of high ground, uh, or we, we took a small hill that was right behind those two compounds that we thought this guy lived in. We, we held that piece of high ground and then had uh, our assault elements clear the compounds. And man, right away they found a huge cache of weapons and, and uh, um, uridium sap phones. And they caught the guy that we were after and he was clearly bad because he had like several passports in his name and, and all that. And then we held that, that position for a remain over daylight operation. And so sun comes up and then sun comes up and all the women and children leave the rest of the village. Hmm. And this is the Taliban. were always really cool about this is they got all the civilians out of the way. Um, which when you, when you think about that's almost like a little bit of chivalry going on. Right. And it cleans stuff up for us too, because now we're like, we're not worried about inadvertently hurting civilians because everybody who's left is coming to attack us and uh um women and children leave taliban didn't attack us straight away which was their typical mo right that's how Mm -hmm. they work prior to that and instead 
they took a bunch of times to figure out exactly what compounds we were in and that we had the high ground. And so instead of just attacking us straight away, when we've got an advantageous position, they, they figured out where we were at. And then they, they, and this is the problem with fighting in the mountains, right? They pushed into all the high ground locations around us and completely surrounded us. And then I'm up on that high ground position and it's like, two, three in the morning, and we're starting to dig in for the fight for the remain over day. And our standard operating procedure was like, hey, everybody's going to carry 10 empty sandbags so that you, you know, they're light, and then you can fill them up to, to make yourselves a decent fighting positions. We start trying to fill sandbags up on that hillside, and it's solid rock. Hmm. It's like trying to fill up a sandbag in the parking lot of Target or Walmart. It's just, we got two sandbags filled, and that's it. And it's something that we should have completely thought about because like Afghanistan essentially is it's a big pile of rocks. So we cobbled together the best fighting position that we could up there, moving boulders and rocks and stuff like that. And we really didn't put the effort into it that we needed to. So that when the Taliban hit us the next afternoon or at like 1030 in the morning, um, you know, because they spent the whole morning figuring out where they're at. And they hit us with this this combined attack. So there were at least five positions completely ringing us in on the high ground around us. Hmm. And initially they kicked off with a huge volley of rocket-propelled grenades. So there must have been, between our position and the compounds below us, we had to have taken 20 rocket-propelled grenades coming in all around our position, hitting the compound. Ours, our fighting position was small. Luckily, none of them were inside of it, but they were all around it and over us. Um, and then they had a steady stream of PKM firing. A PKM is a big belt-fed machine gun. So you're right now, I want you to think 240 Gulf, right? right? Right. And they've got these things linked up like thousand-round belts linked up, and they are just hosing our position from every which way I'm laying on my belly. Here's another lazy complacent thing that I did. And all of us did was it got hot. So we decided to take our body armor and helmets off. How stupid is that? So I'm able to snake my way into my, my body armor, get my helmet back over my head. I've got my weapon. I look at this cheesy rock wall. That's eight inches above my head. And I'm watching it physically erode under the impact of the bullets. And for a second, I thought, well, I, I need to get up there and start shooting back. And I'll tell you what, I'd no sooner put my face into a table saw than I was going to put my head up over that rock wall because I was just going to get shot. And so the next thing I thought of was, well, I, there's, I, I, I'm just doing the math here. I don't see how I don't wind up getting killed today. And this is what I get. I've lived by the sword and I'm going to die by it. And then I thought about what it might feel like to get shot. And then I just, I got busy with things I had to do. And that's what I started doing. Um, so it below us, because they were taking fire from elevated positions, they had, they actually had, they, they were able in the, in the compound below us, they were able to fill sandbags down there and they had some pretty decent fighting positions, but they weren't covered from the sky. And so when they were taking this PKM fire from mountaintops, they had to abandon them. And now they're in a walled compound. They can't see out. The Taliban had gotten close enough to them that they were throwing lobbing grenades into the compounds with them. And they had to use their breaching charges to blow holes in the compound walls so they could see out to shoot the Taliban that were getting ready to come into compounds with them. And, you know, this is all playing out over the radio and it's, you're like, ah, this, this isn't good. Right. We've got, we got, we did have air support. We had a predator overhead, which is an unmanned aircraft. Mm -hmm. So it's getting flown by somebody in a trailer. And that person is looking at the battlefield through a thermal image from 30,000 feet. And the problem with thermal imagers when it's hot out is everybody's the same temperature as the uh, um, the rocks. The other problem with them is the Taliban's been playing this game for a long time, and they've got all kinds of countermeasures to outwit our thermal imagers. Like they'll just 
stay, you know, make sure they're in caves. They'll put wet blankets over them. They have all these little tricks that they'll use to make it difficult for the aircraft to see them. An aircraft was able to see two guys that weren't even in the fight at all. So they were essentially no help. Now, we, we communicated this over the radio. Every aircraft in the country is coming as fast as it can to get to our position. And the first the first aircraft that showed up are a couple of French Mirage jets, you know, coalition aircraft. And our J- JTAC, who was right next to me, I mean, him and I were huddled together wondering when we could get our heads up to shoot back. He's, he's on the radio with them. And he's like, hey, guys, I can't get I can't give you a nine line, which is what the, the joint tactical air controller has got to tell them to drop bombs because we can't put our heads up. But you guys, you have our mission products. What we need you to do is do a show of force over these two main ridge lines. Now, what a show of force is, is if, if you've ever been to an air show, I want you to picture when one of those jets just flies over the runway um, as low as they can and basically and this is completely up to the pilots on how low they want to fly during the show of force. Cause the lower they get, the more risk they're taking. Right. Um, yeah. But what this is saying to the Taliban is like, Hey, and to everybody, it's like, Hey, there are American air powers here. It's air power here. And we're getting ready to bring it. Um, and so these French pilots, a minute later, they come back over the radio and they're like, ho, 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 stand by. Here we come. <laughs> <laughs> now they're ripping over both these ridge lines and i gotta hand to these pilots they're flying low and they're kicking off these ir flares as they're flying low because they're the, the the planes are doing it automatically because they're so low right well what this does is this forces the Taliban to put their heads down because they hate our air power, right? Oh, yeah. So now oh, yeah. they get their heads down. Now, oh, I can get my head up. All We can get our heads up and we can start shooting back because we got a general idea where some of these firing positions are. So now we're laying down the lead on these firing positions. And and it's an even fight now. Because now that they're they're they just they're not dominating us. It's it's an even fight back and forth. Our guys got uh, we started pumping mortar rounds out. We had some bigger munitions we started getting out, and so then it was, it was like okay, shoot, we've got some breathing room here, but we are 40 kilometers from the nearest forward operating base, and it's three hours before a QRF gets to us if they're coming. And a QRF is a quick reaction force. So it's not apparent that we're going to live through this day. And then a B-1 bomber checked on station. Oh, perfect. Mm. Yeah. B-1 bombers have bombs to waste. And that pilot, so, so I, I was up on the fires net just listening in, and that pilot sounded like an angel when she says, yeah, I'm going to drop 4,000 pounds of ordnance for you. I'm going to give you eight. 500 pound bombs they're going to be airburst 50 meters off the deck and i'm going to spread them out 100 meters apart so you'll have four in each of those ridge lines that are being troublesome for you and the b1 bomber can do that all at the same time and she said it as coolly and calmly as if she was saying hey jason i'm running down to starbucks you want that dirty chai latte you always get (laughs) and then then, then, then we over the radio we hear weapons release impact in thirty seconds, and at ten seconds over the squad comms we got a ten seconds out, and then boom, 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 these bombs air bursting. It was like the Fourth of July. Everybody just started cheering, and it was like one of those responses where it just came out of you, you yeah. know. Um, except for the Taliban didn't cheer because we killed or wounded half the guys that came out to fight us that day. But she saved us. She saved me from that complacency. She saved me from that lack of humility. And so while it's good to be confident, it's also equally as important to, to be on edge and go, well, where, what am I missing and where can I improve? Yeah, that's an awesome story, by the way. That, that's, that's righteous. So it makes me think of, a question for Jason, if it could. So that complacency, I mean, that's something that we battle with all the time in small teams or co- cohesive, proficient teams. Uh, and it could be just a regular infantry 
company that has, you know, their team or their squad and they're super cohesive and they work well together and they get really good at what they're doing, what their job is. So they do get it's natural, it's human nature to get a little bit complacent when you when you start getting really good at what you're supposed to do. So how do you how do you combat that at the team level? Uh, how do you stay ahead of that so you know, hey, we might be getting complacent. So let's let's do this. What is that? What is the this that keeps you out of that? So the this in the SEAL teams, obviously it didn't keep us out of it, did it? But it helps, right? Sure. What helps is, is the programmatic debrief as part of just what you do. Anytime we did any evolution, whether it was whether it was training a real world, here's what we were going to do when we were done. We're going to clean our weapons and our gear and put it away. And then we were going to debrief. And that is just on the checklist. It's going to happen. And everybody has a voice at that debrief. And rank essentially has to come off because your ego has to come off when you're doing a debrief. So if somebody has a debrief point for the commander, um, yeah, they're not a commander, but they they should weigh all those points because that that soldier, um, sailor, airman, or marine, they're saying that stuff for a reason. Yep. And so these debriefs help. And even if, if like I've seen it written into briefs, it's like, well, what are we missing? And that's written into a brief. And, and you know, here's what we know, here's what we think we know, here's what we assume, those type of things. But uh, getting the debrief going where you can hear everybody's perspective and everybody's point of view. And I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in diversity being an asset mm -hmm. because some of the best process improvements that we've got in the SEAL teams, a lot of them haven't come from SEALs. It comes from uh, an EOD attachment or a comm guy who's attached to us. And, and what's he got? He's got a different perspective. And now they're looking at stuff from a different perspective and they're like, Hey, I noticed you guys are doing this. Had you considered? And no, we didn't consider it because we're all in here doing our group think and uh, we hadn't it. So, so that's all good. I, I think the, the debrief um, I, I, and I think building a culture in, in your, in your, in your unit where you take pride in not, not getting complacent. And and that means that, Hey, my teammate is going to say, Hey, Hey, you're going to put your eye pro on before we do this next uh, shooting range, you know, there you and go. then being able to check my ego and say, well, what does this guy really mean by, is he, is he trying to cut me down or is he trying to help me out? My ego will tell me that he's trying to cut me down, mm -hmm. but the reality is he's trying to help me be better and safer. That's, yeah, that's so make a conscious decision to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's awesome. And humility is a big part of that, isn't it? Um, I read an article several years ago that highlighted for me the difference between a lesson learned and a lesson observed. Because we use that mm. term lessons learned all the time. But uh, this, the author pointed out that it, it's really it's only a lesson observed when you, when you notice it. It's not a lesson learned until you put it into practice what what you learned and make those improvements to the process, um, which does take humility, a, a great deal of humility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, really, um, I've had to define for myself what humility means, because a lot of people will mistake humility for meekness. Mm -hmm. And for me, humility is saying I, I always have room to improve. There's always something new for me to learn. Oh yeah, um, for for sure. Well, and you you cued me on that word meekness. I heard a great definition of that word. You know, often when you hear that word meek, you think like mild or milk toast, or or weak or or, or soggy or soft, right? But um, great power under under restraint is is another definition. Oh really? That that you know, that caught me off guard because I would have lined up straight with some of the, the synonyms that you just laid out there. Um, you know, it, and I guess that 
You just got to come up with a different concept for it. Well, I, I so you got me thinking too. Over the years, as I've encountered units or maybe subunits within within a larger organization that have a a culture that might be defined as as toxic, or a mm. a leadership group that might be that might be identified as as toxic. Typically, it comes down to an an individual or a group of individuals that that only have one way to lead, and and it's usually pretty authoritarian, or um, I don't know. Direct isn't always a bad isn't always a bad term either. But they they've only got one tool in the toolbox to to motivate people and and to to bring the best out of the people that they work with. But and of course. Um, Toxic leaders, uh, numerous other studies or authors have observed that toxic leaders will will bring along people that are like them. So pretty soon now you have a whole culture of, of, of toxic leaders. Um, but we have to have more than one tool to lead people, don't we? Yeah, and and I've noticed, I've watched, I've watched actually good people because they're exposed to toxic leaders start to become toxic. Hmm. So. At the same time, when you see a really a, a leader that's not toxic and has a good, good culture and and way that they lead, then people will start to emulate it. It goes both ways. It's just it, it it's it's contagious. Um, I've worked for I, I could box them into two types of people. People that I work hard for because I'm afraid they're going to yell at me. Hmm. And then the people that I work hard for because I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint them. Yeah. Who do I work harder for? Right. And if you get a phone call that says, hey, uh, Jason, will you come work for this person? It probably depends on which box they fall into. Oh, yeah. And and, and, and again, a lot of times in in the military, you don't have the choice. You can navigate orders a little bit around, but yeah. And so when I was thinking about that and I really meditated on why did I, why with this person was I afraid to disappoint them? And this other person, I, you know, I was just worried about them yelling at me. And the the first reason was like, well, because the one person yelled a lot and the other person didn't tend to if ever and then the other common trait between these leaders as i parse it apart is that they treated me with respect Hmm. and and so the it doesn't matter if you're talking to an e1 or an o5 you should treat them with the respect that any human deserves and everybody deserves to respect and that means you talk to them not at them and uh um that means that you got to check your ego a little bit but it's it's a way more efficient way to 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 run things yeah Uh, i agree so i hey jason if if i could i got a a chaplain i'm sorry about that if i could go uh i got a question that kind of tags along to that so having that humility to be able to check your ego when it comes to that kind of those different types of leadership styles. So it makes me think of a question. And I, I, I ask myself this all the time about how leadership styles have changed over the years. So I'd be, I mean, excited to hear what you, what your perspective is on how, how has the leadership styles changed from when you first came in the late eighties and through the nineties and you're growing up through these teams to present day, right before you retired. And, you know, how, how, how did we learn or what did we learn over those years on how to have a different approach to our leadership styles from the nineties to the present day? So that's a great question. And I'm going to preface or I'm going to add this as a note that when I retired, the the new people were awesome. So you'll you'll hear folks complaining about, hey, this generation that or this generation this. No, 
they mm-hmm. were they were all good to go. And if there if there was ever any fault with them, it was in how I was dealing with them. So I think in the nineties there was this big, I, you know, people would just tell folks what to do and not tell them why or what the thought was behind it. And now, because the millennials demanded that out of my generation, they're like, you got to tell us why we're doing this. You can't just tell us to do it. And and you know what? That's good. And yep. we, But if you go back and you look at some of the stuff like Bruce, General Bruce Clark, who was Major uh, or, or Colonel Hathworth's like mentor and his in his book on on leadership he talks about you gotta you have to tell people why they're doing what they're doing that way they can actually get stuff stuff done and i think he talks about when he he took over like the european theater um in germany after the war and the, and the folks were there like it was a peacetime military they were resenting the people there and he's like hey guys don't even understand why the heck we're here and what the mission is we're doing. And he started putting out posters and communicating the why down to everybody. And then he noticed as a result, like a lot of his incidents were going down and other things were, were going a lot smoothly. And it was just because he'd taken that effort to explain the why, and it does take some effort to do it. So I think we're, we're on the right track leadership wise um, across the board. And there, there's, there, there, there's hesitation, and there's people that think that politics have gotten too much into the military's leadership and whatever. And it's like, hey, that's fine. Throw them all at us. Throw all your constraints at us, and we'll figure out how to do it. Is is the way I think that we should we should look at things. So I think leadership has come a long way. Oh, I agree. Hey, thanks, thanks for that perspective. Well, to continue with with that train of thought too. A, uh, I think one of the key differences between a, a good leader and a, and a bad leader, especially in the military, is the ability to translate that purpose down to the lowest level. Because I think we, we lose a lot of people that, that leave the military maybe early, a lot of, a lot of talented people for whom the, the meaning and purpose that's just baked into what we do in the military, that, that gets obscured by, by people who – kind of steamroll their people or don't treat them well or, uh, you know, or maybe just putting the best construction on it. They just haven't helped their people see that what they do matters. Yeah. Those are all great points. And I've got a couple tips on that too. Like initially I think, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make a list of all, all these things are important. And I'm going to go down and and read the guys, the list. Well, that, sort of is good but what i found is when i would just make myself available to my subordinates and so this is at the level when i'm a command master chief now and you know i got like 200 people underneath me at a seal teams and very different people too you know i've got everything from the seal operators who's one type of person if you generically put them to the to my administrative folks and uh, um logistic folks who are all a little bit different. And what I had to do was just make myself available to them or carve time out of the day where I just was around and talked to them and found these things that I had in common with them. Um, you know, whether it was TV shows or music or sports that we were watching on TV or food that we liked, I don't care who that person is on this planet. There isn't somebody out there that doesn't have one common trait. And once you develop that that commonality between your folks, then now you, you'll notice that you take them off of one list and put them in another. And then what they do, what what I'm my assumption is that what they're doing with you as a leader is you no longer become this that guy up in the office that you know is going to yell at me and get a haircut but no that's that's not that guy that's master chief gardner and 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 he cooks his brisket the same way i do or he he likes that same tool song that i do or whatever it is and then now that knocks down some walls and then allows us to communicate in a non-formal manner now this is only realistic about 
three levels down um, in the in the leadership deal. You know, it's it's just like a battalion commander can't get all the way down into the to the roots, but he can get at least three or four leaders down and make himself available. Um, whether it's at a training evolution or command functions or any of those to just, just have conversations about something other than work. And then you'll find that they lead to work and then it gives you an opportunity to express why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Well, that's, that's super uh, important. And that's one of the struggles that we have in the reserve components when we only see our people maybe two days out of the month or you'll get mm-hmm. them for a, for a period of a few weeks at some point during the year for training until you deploy, you know, and then, uh, of course, then you're, then you're, you're living together, eating together, um, spending a lot of time with, with one another, but to be able to communicate that, um, in real ways goes a long way. Right. And, and that means you got limited time. You got to prioritize and execute our third law combat and that's one front. And like, what are the most important relationships I got to develop? And then that's where your time goes. And then you work your way out from there. Yeah, because we can we can get so wrapped around the the immediate tasks that we have to get accomplished, whether that's this drill weekend or during this quarter. Um, these are the things mm-hmm. that we that we have to do, um, and we can we can burn people out that way too, or lo- or lose sight of the, the the bigger purpose and meaning. Right. I mean, and here's the deal: oftentimes we can get the tactical win for the strategic loss. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's so important for us to be thinking strategically all the, 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 the whole time. So if I've got an immediate goal and I'm like, well, Hey, this is going to put me out with these people. And so while I'm doing that, I'm also going to take some time to develop a relationship with them or find out what their home life is all about or whatever th- those things, you can blend the two of them. And, uh, um, and be successful. So thinking and strategically. By that, I mean strategically and tactically. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that I, I I appreciate kind of how you played those two terms off one another because quite often we we can think that strategy or thinking strategically is something that they do up in the corner office or uh, back at the headquarters. How, do, how does that? How low does that go? Or how do you translate that down to a, to lower levels? Well, as General Clark discovered, I mean, you got to push it all the way down to the lowest level. And so folks need to know what winning looks like. And sometimes that may seem obvious. And sometimes it, it, it takes a little bit of thought like, hey, well, what is if, if I'm a unit commander? What does winning look like? Mm hmm. And so that that may be that it's it's a great experience and we have great retention. It may be that um, it we're we're going to go out and we're actually going to do something to complete and have a real impact on whatever our mission might be overseas. And and then once you've kind of established what winning looks like, then you back up from there. But when one thing I want to caution folks about is the the people if you have no people do you have a mission mm-hmm. no so the people are always going to kind of come first before the mission and there may be some missions where they're the exception and you're just going to make a sacrifice because it's for the greater good of the whole country but that's that is such a small percentage of the time most of the time, your people are more important in the mission. And I'm not saying that you're going to be soft on them. And I'm not saying, saying you're, going to, you're going to cut your standards. Right. But they're, they are factoring into your equation. That's the Army's Absolutely. new philosophy, people first and, and winning matters. Well, I guess it's not really a new philosophy. This is the way I think we've aspired to, to operate as long as there have been armies on the battlefield. But that, when you talk about winning, that does that inspires people to to achieve more and and to work for something greater. And of course, that that brings me to one of my well, kind of the reason for this podcast and and one of the, the things that as a chaplain, the things the things that I love to talk about is hope. Now, mm-hmm. uh, you've probably heard too, uh, hope is not a course of action. 
And I think there's some validity to that because being hopeful doesn't it, that's not a naive optimism. That doesn't mean you can wish away a failure to prepare, a failure to train, a failure to plan. And you know, and we can't we we can't just just not do the things that we're supposed to or fail to meet the standards in peacetime or in training environments and then expect to go out and do great things when 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 everything is on the line. Um, so I so I always contend that hope is an essential leader characteristic. So what what gives you hope and and as a leader, how did you try to model that and or did you consciously try to model that and um, what what does that look like? Living with hope or leading with hope? So I, I'm gonna I, I think there's a component of making the best of the cards you've been dealt with um, in in that hope aspect. That's a component of it, right? And mm-hmm. I, I and 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 just leaning into it and and having that 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 idea like, hey, we're we're going to give it a hundred to ten percent of what we've got. Um, as a young seal, I had a I was working for this chief named Danny Carroll, who is a really really charismatic guy. And when we were in town on 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 regular weekdays, so it's a regular weekday, and we're just at the seal team. Our, what our Fridays looked like was we would do command PT, and then after command PT was completed. Uh, we would knock out um, cleanup. And then you would get a cleanup uh, assignment based on whatever department you were in. And you would get that done and the master at arms would come inspect it. And then once, once, once it was inspected, you, you were clear, you had Liberty. So the potential was that you could be off by like noon on Fridays. Hmm. So you got all these different cleanup areas there at SEAL team five. And Danny Carroll's our chief. And I'm working in the training cell and he goes off to get our cleanup assignment and he comes back. And I don't know if he, if he actually volunteered for it or it's what we wound up getting, but he comes back and we ask him, Hey, what's our cleanup assignment? And he goes, we've got the head. And the, 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 the head in the Navy is the latrine in the army. And it was the, that was the one assignment that everybody despised and no one wanted to get. And so we were all like moping, right? And he looks at us and he just like, he's got this big smile on his face and he's, he's laughing as he says this. He goes, what's the matter with you guys? The head's the easiest one to do. Come on, I'll show you how to do it. <laughs> so we get, and, and now we don't know what to make of it because Danny's like really enthusiastic, right? And he seems to be having fun. So we get down there and he goes, he goes, all right, first of all, go get some surgical gloves because we're not going to mess around with any of these things. We're just putting our hands right in the urinal. Get some surgical gloves on. I'll show you how to do it. So we get the surgical gloves. We got them on. And then I'm like in the urinal next to him. And he's looking at me. He's like, Gardner, my urinal is going to be way cleaner than yours. And so now we got a competition going. <laughs> and it was fun. And, and, and here's the deal. At the end of the day, if you analyze that whole situation, no matter what, we were going to clean that head before we went home. And so the choice was ours as to whether we had a good time with it or we moped about it. Now we, we got inspected by the master arms guy walks in there. He's like, Oh my gosh, this is great. You guys are out of here. And then we're boom, we're out on Liberty. And then we took pride in it. So every Friday after that, we volunteered to take the head. Yep. And that was our thing. And every, and we were the first guys to get released on Liberty every time. And so I feel like that enthusiasm, that hope component of it, that that's what got us through. And I think that's something that, you know, in the worst situations, when I've had the presence of mind to think about this is what I need to be pushing out to the guys, that's what I've done. And, and it's contagious. Yeah. Yeah, you, I've heard you chat about stoicism before too, and and you you can't control the hand that you're dealt, but you absolutely can control your attitude toward it. Right, and there's that that wonderful Viktor Frankl quote mm-hmm. that has been floating around, and Viktor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning and was a Holocaust survivor, and 
he says that in between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is the room for you to, or in that space, you get to choose your response. And in your response is your potential to grow and, uh, and freedom. And, and I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have it right in front of me, but it's it's powerful and it's stuck with me. It, it um, is, yeah. I give that book uh, in, out all the time. Japan, I don't think I could read that book all the time. I, uh, um, but it's it's good to get a sense of gratitude, right? Yeah. Like oh, you, yeah. it's hard to 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 realize how good you have it until you realize until you hear about what folks went through in the Holocaust or what folks went through in the Bataan death March or what folks went through, you know, in, in any given, some of these historical mm-hmm. situations, you're like, dang, I got it pretty easy. You know? Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, but I, I give away that book. Uh, I've given away dozens of copies. And so any of our Oregon guardsmen, uh, air guard, army guard, come by my office. I got a copy of that book for you. Oh, heck yeah. That's great. Well, Jason, I want to be respectful of your time. Maybe just in uh, as kind of a closing thought, you you recently did make that transition from three decades in the SEAL teams to civilian life, and um, uh, you, it sounds like you've you've definitely found your purpose again, uh, teaching leadership and, and training people. How did you make that transition? Well. It's, you know, separating from the military is a slow motion train wreck, right? (laughs) But it's something like you can see it coming five years out. And so three years out, I started developing a plan. You know, I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? I need to have a plan. And so we plan for every other contingency in the military. Plan for the contingency of getting out. And then shift your priorities. And and it's a great, it's so great because my priorities got to shift from what the nation needed from me to what my family and my community needed from me. And so I've, I've been able to shift my focus in the leadership, talking about leadership and getting in, you know, paid to go to help people with it is, is awesome. But the ability just to step into that role more fully of being a father and a husband and a community member mm. and seeing what, what things I can do. Like there's a lot of folks that are pretty frustrated with the nation right now as a whole. And it's because they're, 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 they're buying the clickbait that the media lays out for them. And they're not looking around at their own communities. I think if you look around at your own community, you find a, there's a bunch of great people there. Yeah. And that's what this country is. It's a bunch of great people, your neighbors that come over and help you out when you skid off the road in a snowstorm or um, mow the lawn for you when you've got a weekend. That That's what this country is. And that's solid. And so focusing on the good things, noting the things that need improvement and then working, working on, on, on improving them. Been really, that's, that's the mindset I've had and it's been super helpful for me. That's that's pretty powerful, and I think a great way to wrap it up. Again, Jason, thank you so much for your time today, and, and blessings to you and your family and your work. All all the best to you all. I I really appreciate it, and, and I, hey, you you brought something up about your daughter. Yeah. Um, and it, do we have a, another couple minutes? Oh yeah, if you have the time, we do absolutely. Should I, okay. Should I, should so, I tease that? Yeah. Uh, yep. Um, so this is something that, that, you know, my daughter's going to turn 11 soon. And I was thinking about like, what, what kind of father I wanted to be for her and what kind of father she needed me to be. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote this thing out and it's, it's essentially, it's my manifesto to my daughter. Um, and I'm working on one for my son, but I, I think we, we have boys, we, we have the 70 to 80% solution for boys and we're, our, our solution isn't there for girls yet, hmm. but we're working on it. So he, here it is. And I'm going to read it verbatim. And then um, I, I'd love to talk about any of these points if you want to tease them out. But a promise to my daughter, I will love you unconditionally, always, no matter what. I will not pamper you. This will forge a resilience that will help you conquer all of life's obstacles. 
I do not intend to raise a princess, but rather a warrior with fire in her heart and ice in her veins. In my mind, there is nothing you can't do and no job or goal beyond your reach. I will challenge you so that you can stand confidently on your own two feet, independent and strong. I will set the example on how to treat those you love so that when you choose a partner, it will be someone who lifts you up. Hmm. And I will invest my time and energy in you so that when I'm gone, there'll be enough memories of me to keep in your heart forever. Stand tall with your shoulders back. This world is yours for the taking. And that, that closes it out. That's fantastic. Thank so, you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So, Jason, my, my daughter's the same age. So today, as we record this... <laughs> This morning, I was I was taking her to school. It's her it's her half birthday, so she'll be eleven in uh, in six months. Uh-huh. But I was I was kind of briefing my wife on what I had on the schedule today, and I said I was I was going to talk with Jason Gardner, who who works with Jocko. And my daughter said, "I remember <laughs> him and she, from the podcast." And it took me a second. I realized she was talking about the the Warrior Kid podcast. We're on her we're on our second time listening through that. She said, "I don't remember what he said." But, uh, yeah. but I remember who that is. Um, that was, I've got, I've got goosebumps. So, yeah. Thank, thank you. It, you know, Echelon Front started printing it out on a poster and, and it's, it's available. I think for dads, there's a real hesitation because here's, here's what my nature is. My nature is like to want to pamper her and shelter her and do everything for her. And that just is not setting her up for success. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, I, I don't ever want her, her to feel like they're like, if my daughter wants to be a seal and she can make the standards then she can do it. Absolutely. 100%. Um, and, and I'm not saying the standards should change, but I, I don't think that just because of your gender, that any, any job should be held back from you. And I'm really glad that at this point, in, in our country's history that, that we're knocking down with a lot of those obstacles yeah. to progress for women. Yes, we are. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, some days my daughter wants to be a hairdresser, but other days she says she's going into the military. <laughs> and so I, I have told her she should be a, a, a Navy rescue swimmer. There you go. I think she's yeah. got that. That's, yeah. all. Hey, so that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. Oh, I imagine it is. I thought that was pretty cool, Jason, that uh, that you wrote that out uh, for your daughter because majority of parents probably don't actually do that. I mean, uh, my son's 21 years old. He's now in the Army. Does he want to uh-huh. be like Dad, you know? Yeah. And I never actually wrote that out. And, and you make that point that kind of hit me of, uh, you know, as a parent, you want to protect your child from all the bad in the world. And... I think that's a that's a natural thing for a parent to, to want to do that. But should we be doing that? We should just prepare them for some of the bad that's in the world so they can get out there and be resilient when something bad does happen. So Yes. Yes. And 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 so like <clears throat> hey, if 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 at public school they hear something that I don't agree with, good. That that allows me to have a conversation with my kids when yeah. they get home about the topic and, and figure it out because just saying, well, I don't want you to experience this is, is, is like being kind of myopic because they're going to go out into the world at some point and, yep. and you're not setting them up for success by, by not letting them at least like overcome these obstacles where, where there's training wheels on it and you can catch them when they make a mistake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's great stuff. Thanks for sharing that. And I, I heard uh, the emotion in your voice. So that's uh, pretty powerful. Thank you. I I found that as I become more introspective and I've become more confident that the emotions are flowing from me um, a lot uh, more freely, which is good because mm-hmm. it's good to just have them and let them out. Yeah. Um, and then, then it's, I mean, it just lets you know how much, how much I love my daughter and mm-hmm how much I, I want to see her, her do good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So often we can probably get wrapped up in, well, like you talked about a 
few minutes ago with exchanging tactical victories for for the strategic victory. We can get so wrapped up in just the day-to-day nuts and bolts of being a parent and getting our kids to the right place at the right time with the right stuff. And, 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 you, and you took the time to, to, to write out. That, that's, the, that's the big picture about the love that we have for our children as parents. It, it was something that was really bothering me for a while because I, I wasn't comfortable with the, oh, what are you going to do when your daughter's 15 and she starts dating? And are you going to clean a, 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 you know, be in the living room, like cleaning a, a gun? And I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a really good strategy to me. It didn't. And then, then treating my daughter's dating any different than my son didn't seem like a good strategy. And then I, I just started peeling it all back and I was like, I don't like this Disney. Pr- I don't want her to be a Disney princess that needs to be rescued. I want, I want her to be like the girl in Brave or Mulan that yeah. that can there go out and just get things done. And if if that's who she is, then then that sets her up for success. Yep. You know, better than anything else. Yeah, and, and anyway, and and that that teaches our children uh, not just to be consumers, but to to make life better for the people around them. You know, especially in those those relationships that they'll have as they get older and mature and and move on in life. And here's the other thing, and while we're on this leadership topic, because we can go on it forever, but <clears throat> your kids are going to pick up way more by how they see you act than um, what you say to them. Mm-hmm. And so I found this in leadership too. It's like, they're watching you a hundred percent of the time. And if, if you hear something from a senior and you roll your eyes and exhales, everyone below you saw you do that. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's a really heavy weight and burden to bear to realize, Hey, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on call 24 hours a day. And so like one of the things that I try really hard to model for my children is, is kindness because uh, my wife and I, uh, about two years ago, we, we were like, Hey, well, what's our end state as parents? Where do we want to go as parents? You know, what does winning look like? We talked about this earlier about communicating that to your subordinates. Well, how about for just to figure it out for ourselves? And we decided that we wanted to raise kind, confident, competent adults. Mm-hmm. And so now we got a dang target out there, right? And so now that we have that target, as we we plan and we we make decisions as parents, now we know how to make those decisions. So so if I want to raise a competent adult and my daughter climbs up an apple tree and gets stuck, yeah, I want to rescue her, but I'm not making a competent adult by doing that. So then I just go over and coach her down out of the apple tree. Um but it, it it wasn't until we actually set that target and thought long and hard about what that target was for us to aim at. And I love this, but you know they they say that like the isn't it the word sin actually means to miss the target or miss the mark? Yeah, that's one real definition. Mm-hmm. And so you you then then you can think about sin in a different context from one of shame to one of like, well, I just need to do better. But anyway, that's the target. But a lot of folks just haven't really defined their target. And and so we'll just, in, in the parenting standpoint, what, what do you want? What do you want at the end of the day? Take, take a second in simple terms, define your target. And then that'll be super helpful for you. You can backtrack from that and figure out how you're going to parent. Yeah. Cool stuff. Awesome. I, I really appreciate um, you having me on the show. And if there's an opportunity or there's an opportunity when I come out there and there's time to do another one in person, I would love it. That'd be fantastic, Jason. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll work on when when uh, we'll try to refine the schedule so we can do that. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, wish we had more time to do this because we could, like you said, we could spend hours talking about these kind of topics. I mean, this is great stuff so it, it is and the time just flies by it's such a, a great interesting conversation so um yeah I, I i'm excited to do this in person count me in um cool. 
and uh, I'm I'm sure that my travel will allow it. We'll figure it out when we get closer to it. Sweet. Look forward to meeting you in uh, April, Jason. Yeah, me too, Lee. Can't wait. Well, fantastic, and, and blessings to you and your family up in uh, Washington State, just uh, just north of us. Yep, and same back at you, chaps. Take care. Thank you. Bye. This podcast is produced by the Oregon National Guard Public Affairs Office. My prayer for you is that wherever you find yourself, that you might find hope for today and strength for the ambiguity and chaos of life. Blessings on the rest of your day.